Amen. Good morning to you. That's yeah, cool. Those young people up there. It is a little bittersweet, maybe uh, bordering on sad, that we come to the conclusion of Mark's gospel in chapter 16 here this morning. It seems like just yesterday that we were um, beginning, maybe it was more like a year and a half ago or so, but... Um, that we were beginning this wonderful gospel. And uh, anyway, it's bittersweet to part from it. It is um, on a sad note that the chapter begins as well. You would think just the opposite, though, on the heels of the greatest victory in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is where we ended last week in chapter 16, uh, verse 6. You would think that that would be the predominant theme of rejoicing and joy and exuberation as we begin um, picking up in verse 7, but it's not. Instead, what you have are disciples that are despondent, discouraged, they're depressed. And one of the great things that Mark chapter 16 reveals to us is the transformation of Jesus' disciples, not just the remaining 11, but the women, the greater body of disciples. There were a multitude of disciples that followed Jesus, that had put their trust in Jesus. And what Mark 16 reveals is the transformation, uh, the amazing transformation of their hearts upon becoming convinced in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Though, as we'll see in this chapter, that was not at all easy. If you remember last week, the women on that Sunday morning, the resurrection Sunday morning, when they went to uh, the tomb, they came to anoint the body, Jesus' body, with spices for the burial. And their primary concern on top of that was, well, who's going to roll away this two-ton or whatever it was stone from the front of the tomb. The last thing that was on their minds that Sunday morning was the resurrection. Now that's not to criticize these women because the men maybe were even more discouraged. They were back at home hiding out, as John's gospel tells us, in fear. Despite the fact that Jesus had told them many times that he was going to rise from the dead. In John chapter 2, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, John said it, he only, in retrospect, understood what Jesus was saying, that he was referring to the temple of his body at the time. But in another place, he compared himself to the prophet Jonah. We talked about that last week, how he said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of of the earth. But you might say, well, those are vague predictions. That's not specific. Yeah, but Jesus in other places said, we're going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed and crucified, and on the third day I will rise again. Several different times in several places that he said that as well. It's interesting to me that in John's gospel, John's own testimony was that after he poked his head into the empty tomb that Sunday morning, and he says, quote, he saw and believed that he is brutally honest when he admits that he had come to believe, but not based upon any of the scriptures or anything that Jesus had told him. He said later on, for as yet they did not know the scripture 
that he must rise again from the dead. It actually seems that the religious leaders may have taken Jesus a bit more seriously as it relates to his resurrection. For after all, they decided to guard the tomb when the disciples were at home uh, mourning and fearing for their own lives. They had no anticipation of what you and I know to be the rest of the story. And so that Sunday morning began a very dark, discouraged, kind of defeated crew these disciples of Christ were because they had come to believe in him, to rely on him, to very much love him. And yet you need to understand this before we get into this chapter. There is zero indication in the text. There's zero indication that anybody believed that Jesus was coming back. All of the sudden, for so many of Jesus' closest disciples, life had really lost its meaning. And again, despondency was the primary emotion that would describe them. Hope had been lost. Sometimes they think that Christians even go through difficult, dark days. We go through tough times. Even though for us as Christians, we have access to a joy that is constant in our lives, we also go through times of depression. We go through times of discouragement. And the reason I think in part that God allows that is because we live in a world full of people that are completely stuck in that. Now, maybe they become immune to it over time, or maybe they do things to become numb to it, but nevertheless, they're completely consumed by it. And it's why I'm convinced that God will sometimes allow us to taste of it occasionally that we would be reminded what it is that people all around us are experiencing all the time that don't know Jesus Christ, that never have experiences like we just had just now, being able to worship him and have that freedom to be freed up. I mean, you have difficulty. Some of you have come here today with difficulty very much on your heart, and yet you can sing, you can worship, you can pray, you can seek God, and in that time, you're completely freed up from that. You can even leave here today with a joy that fills your heart that whatever was bothering you when you came in is not dominating your mindset at that point in time. But the world around us does not have that option. In other words, and I talk about when we go through the ups and downs of this life, I'm not talking about I had a good day or I had a bad day. I mean the real ups and downs, like you lose a, a loved one is lost, you know, or you lost your job and you cannot pay your bills and you're wondering how in the world you're going to do things and the financial stress is hitting your family and you're at your spouse or you're having problems just with your children. You're watching your children go through something difficult. What's more hard than that? The real ups and downs in life, sometimes I think God allows us to go through those things so that we would have a heart for our family, for our friends, for our coworkers, for our neighbors, even for people around this entire world that don't know Jesus Christ that need to come to believe, just as the women at the tomb came to believe, Mary Magdalene came to believe, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus came to believe, and the other 11 came to believe that as that angel told those women, on that resurrection Sunday morning, he is risen. And what this chapter does, and I think you should make special note of the fact that what this chapter does is shows us how dramatic the changes that we see in the disciples. Because with every fiber of their being, listen, they did not believe the resurrection. They did not believe it. And that's what this shows us. They rejected it with several testimonies. 
and yet something changes and that something that changes has an impact that reaches down into this room to this very day let's take a look picking up where we left off last time in verse 7 of mark chapter 16 the angel had just said he is risen and then the angel says but go speaking to the women tell his disciples and peter i like that part too that subtle little and peter not because the lord loved peter more than the other disciples but because peter had fallen in a different way than they had fallen you know they all i mean jesus said all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night but Peter especially, I mean, he said, look, I will never stumble. I won't deny you. I'll die for you. And yet when a little girl asked him if he was a follower of Jesus Christ, he cursed and he swore and he said, I do not know the man. And so the angel here says, let him know. And especially Peter. That's so personal. Our God is so personal. You could put your name in there this morning. You could fill your name right in there. Tell all my disciples, and especially Joe or Jim or Bob. Because you know what? God has such a great love for those of us that have fallen the hardest. That's not to say that we're to go out today and try to find a way to fall hard so that God will love us even more. But you know, you've had times in your life when you've done things where you feel like you just let God down. I'll tell you, you didn't do anything worse than Peter. Peter will go uh, blow for blow with you on that. Say, you know, whatever you've done, what I did was worse. And look at the angel says, go tell his disciples and Peter. <clears throat> go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. And that would be later on, a few weeks later, but even this very night, Jesus is going to appear to the disciples. We'll take a look at that later on. Verse 8, So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now that does not mean that they did not report the good news to the other disciples. It means that they did not dilly-daddle. They made a beeline. They went straight for the disciples. They didn't take the time to sit there and talk amongst themselves or get their stories straight or get distracted by anybody in town along the way. It was not the time at this point in time to be preaching the gospel to just anyone. The direct request from the angel was that they were to go to the disciples first and let them know that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, we know from John's gospel that as soon as the disciples received the news of the resurrection from the women, that Peter and John immediately got up and they ran to the tomb. John's clear to point out to us that he ran faster than Peter and beat him to the tomb. Twice he pointed out, just wants us to know. And they ran to the tomb to check it out. And we're told that they actually went inside the tomb and then John said that as he poked his head in again, he, quote, saw and believed. But what he actually believed, I'm really not sure because we see here next, they reject the testimony of Mary Magdalene. Verse 9, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Fascinating. Here's Mary Magdalene. She's the first to have seen the resurrected Christ. 
and the disciples don't believe. Now, I often wondered, is it that they don't believe at this point, or is it that they don't believe her? Remember last week we talked about the testimony of a woman in that day, in that culture. It wasn't credible to most men in that sense. And so is it possible that they believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, but they just don't believe her testimony? Or is it possible they believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, they just don't believe that he would have appeared to Mary Magdalene, a woman, first before he would have appeared to them? Another surefire mark of authenticity as it relates to our study of the Gospels. Why? For, you see, if I would have been making up a story about the resurrection as a Gospel writer in that day, I certainly wouldn't have said that Jesus' Jesus's first appearance was to a woman, and at that, one who had been demon-possessed. And yet the first post crucifixion appearance was to Mary Magdalene. I suppose if that was the only appearance that we have in Scripture, the rumors of Jesus' resurrection would have died quickly, especially considering the fact that the disciples did not believe. They are at this point in time completely entrenched in doubt and discouragement. In fact, they're not even going to receive the testimony of two men either. Take a look, verse 12. After that, he appeared in another form, to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And the full account of this is in Luke 24. This is when Jesus appeared to those two, you may know the story, that were on the road to Emmaus. Two disciples, not two of the remaining 11, but just two disciples. There were a lot of disciples in that day. And they were headed from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They were headed out of town. They were going home. They were packing up. They were giving up. They were throwing in the towel. That was it. They were done. They were discouraged. In fact, Luke records the conversation that showed us as much, that they were discouraged. And along the way, here comes Jesus, and he starts walking with them. And he starts to inquire as to what it is that they're talking about and their discouragement. He's like, what in the world is wrong with you two? I'm paraphrasing. What in the world is wrong with you two? And they're like, are you the only one who hasn't heard anything in Jerusalem the last few days? Are you the only one who didn't know what's going on? And interestingly enough, he was the only one who did know what was going on in Jerusalem the last few days. So they would walk and talk, and Jesus kind of talked to them about the scriptures, and they got a little bit more interested along the way, and they asked him to spend some more time with them, and eventually he revealed himself to them. Initially, the Bible says that their eyes were restrained so that they did not know that it was Jesus. Imagine walking down the road with Jesus but not knowing it. Isn't that crazy? Except that you do it all the time. Every single day of your life, you're walking down the road and you forget that you are walking alongside the resurrected Christ. That his spirit, one that's identical to him, is living inside of you, if you're a born-again believer in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is living inside of you and you're walking down the road and the resurrected Christ is there by your side. And sometimes we forget. And I'm convinced that's part of the reason why there's discouragement and there's doubt and there's frustration and despondency. It's because of unbelief. Unbelief because we forget that Christ has risen from the dead. It's why all of the things in life that can bother us and can rise in terms of importance in our lives to become predominant to the point that it does take away my joy in the Lord. It does take away all of the 
uh, peace that I have, all of the comfort that I have, the settled nature of my heart based on the resurrection is sapped away because I've forgotten that the resurrected Christ is by my side walking with me along the way. Well, as soon as these two figure out that Jesus is risen from the dead, verse 13 says, and they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Well, here's a stubborn bunch. So obviously it wasn't the testimony of the women that was the reason for the disciples rejecting, right? Because now here are two disciples, two men who come and say he is risen, and they don't believe it either. And I wonder if they just outright reject it, maybe in part they do, or if in part they don't want to believe it because they so badly want to believe it. And so they're guarding their hearts against it. In fact, some of you may be here this morning, and you may be someone who's never put your faith and trust in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a way for you to be reconciled unto God for the forgiveness of your sins. Because, like the disciples, it's almost like, I want to believe it, but it's just too good to be true. And you're there right now, and you're listening, but you're, you know, in your heart, you're kind of like, I'm not listening to you. And the reason why is because... It's just too good to be true, right? I mean, I would love to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. That by just believing in my heart and confessing with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, I would be saved and that I would be going to heaven. I would spend eternity with God in paradise in a sinless perfection that I'd put on incorruption someday. That's too good to be true. Some people are like that. Some people will come to church and they reject the message because it's just too good to be true. I wonder if the disciples, in a way, are guarding their hearts so badly would they have wanted to believe the resurrection that they're rejecting the resurrection because they didn't want to set themselves up for any kind of disappointment down the road. Now, they're in a little different situation, though. I mean, consider their condition. It was only just a few days before that the religious leaders had come and arrested Jesus and took him and crucified him. And so it has to be, I would think in part, that their thought was, are we next? I mean, if they were bold enough, the religious leaders, to take Jesus and go through the process of taking him and prosecuting him and then ultimately crucifying him as popular as he was with the crowd at the time, if they were able to pull that off, then why wouldn't they be able to do the same thing with the disciples? And John's Gospel tells us, that they were huddled up, that the doors were shut, and the words for doors were shut were they were locked or barred for, quote, fear of the Jews, the religious leaders, that they were going to come and they were going to get them next. And so as we posed the question last week, I pose it again this week, what in the world changed? They all ran for their lives. They all were out to save their own skin. They rejected the testimony of the women. They rejected the testimony of the two disciples, despite the fact that Peter and John looked inside the tomb and saw the tomb was empty. And yet they still don't believe, and we have to ask the question, well, then what in the world changed? And it's pretty clear what's actually changed. In fact, there's only one explanation for what's changed, and it's found in verse 14. It says, later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. <clears throat> Notice, Jesus does not rebuke them for denying him. He does not rebuke them from, 
uh, running from him or freaking out in the process or hiding out here from the religious leaders in fear. He doesn't rebuke them for that. He rebukes them for their unbelief. I'm convinced that if there is a way in which we let down God, it's in that area of unbelief. I don't really think you let God down so much because God already knows what you're going to do before you did it. So when he got you, he knew exactly what he was getting in you and everything you were going to do, past, present, and future. But from our perspective, I'm convinced when we let down God, so to speak, we let him down as it relates to unbelief and unbelief alone. You're like, well, wait a minute. You didn't see the way that I spoke to my wife yesterday. You didn't know about what was going on in my mind the other day. You don't know the things in my past that haunt me to this day. And I would say, well, yeah, I understand that. But I think in every single one of those instances, all of those things at the very beginning point, the launching point of those sins every single time is unbelief. If I was uh, completely convinced of the presence of Almighty God with me 24-7 wherever I go, I don't know. I still have flesh, but I'd probably sin a lot less. How about you? It's only when we become unaware of God's presence in our life that those things start to happen. Why did I talk to her that way? Why did I think those things? Because I kind of like pretend like God's not looking at me for that moment in time. Like he's not really there. Like those two disciples weren't aware of his presence at that moment in time. And in part, I think that's why Jesus here at the core of the things, because the Bible says the way to please him is by faith, I think if there's a way to displease him is when there's a lack of faith in our lives because it leads to all those other kinds of things. Of course, he doesn't harp on it long. Right away, he goes into it, verse 15, and he said to them, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This is just one version of the Great Commission. Jesus gave the same commission numerous times in varied settings and, and forms. And every time, though, two components are the same. He says, go, and he says, preach. Go and preach. Don't go to church to accumulate Bible knowledge for the sake of Bible knowledge. But that we would go and we would preach the good news. Exactly because we know what it's like to be a part of this world, those of you who came to Christ a little bit later on in life, especially can speak to this. You know, some of you, maybe if you were saved when you were like six or seven, don't have as much of a testimony along these lines. But some of you that got saved in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s, you know how hopeless this life is apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know firsthand, exactly because you know this world has no hope apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's exactly why this commission is timeless in application. It was not just something that was given to the disciples then. It was, but it's for us today. Because you know what it's like to have no hope, to be discouraged, to be despondent, to be depressed. Even now, sometimes today, as a Christian, go and preach to every creature on this planet. He who believes, verse 16, and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, I think it's important to remember, of course, 
in reading this that um, you don't come to believe that baptism is required for salvation based upon this statement right here. There are many examples that I could use to demonstrate to you that baptism is not required for salvation. Most obvious one might be the thief on the cross, right? If you remember, the thief on the cross, he turned to Jesus at one point and he said, hey, would you remember me in your kingdom? And Jesus did not say to him, hey, um, there's no uh, body of water around here, and the two of us are a little hung up at the time, and so we're not going to be able to baptize you. Uh, no, he said, surely today you will be with me in paradise. So we know that baptism is not required for salvation. However, baptism is still required. It is not an essential, but it is essential. What am I talking about? If you were to say to me, hey, if I don't get baptized, but I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, will I be saved? The answer is yes. But I would say to you, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, why wouldn't you get baptized? Baptism is that obedience to God that is an outward proclamation or declaration of what God has done already in your heart in transforming your life that you now identify as we lift you down into the water and we pull you back up with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And good for you, September 21st next month just so happens that we're going to have a baptism right down at the beach here in Capitola. And for this church body, it's like a church-wide picnic. Everybody goes. You want to know why? Even if you're not being baptized, it is so fun to watch people get baptized. And we want to celebrate that all together in enjoying the work the Lord has done. There are several people that have already requested to be baptized. And if you're a person who has not been baptized and you have come to a saving knowledge, saving faith of Jesus Christ, then this is a time where you can be baptized in obedience to God. If you have children, we don't baptize babies, but if you have a child who is old enough to have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and you believe they're born again, this would be an opportunity for you to encourage your children to be baptized as well. So mark your calendars for that date. But notice the verse again really quick, just so you know that I'm right about this. It says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Who's going to be condemned? Those who do not believe, not those who are not baptized. Baptism is just something that seems to go hand in hand with belief. You believe, then you get baptized. It was synonymous in the early church at that time. And verse 17, these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, this is very important where context comes into play, right? He is talking about the Great Commission. He promises them that these are signs that will follow those who believe. By the way, these are signs that follow those who believe. These are not signs for those who believe to follow. I think sometimes believers get caught up in searching after signs or seeking out tent revivals for a hundred bucks or whatever the case may be, where people are doing miracles and wonders and things like that. It's just the opposite. These things will follow those who believe. This is not some to-do list. As you look back at those verses 17 and 18, like the exports of Christianity, the things that you have to do to prove that you're a disciple of God by doing these extreme kinds of things. This is a promise to be understood in the context 
of dangers that are inherent in the worldwide spread of the gospel as it relates to us going out in missions. Just in the same way that when Paul was bitten by a snake there on the island of Malta, he was preserved by God there in Acts chapter 28. Jesus never intended for us to go out and drink poison or handle snakes as a means of uh, proving that we are Christians. And there are some churches where this would be the point where they would bring out a couple boxes of rattlesnakes and pass them around the congregation. Now, let me just assure you that that's not what we'll be doing this morning. I decided against that last, late last night, you know, as I'm praying over uh, the word and we would not do that. No, there are some churches that would do that back in the day, especially until some of the pastors started getting bit and dying, and then they realized this was probably not a very good practice. I think that handling snakes for the uh, sake of handling snakes is basically tempting God. I haven't been on very many uh, missions trips. I can barely survive a camping trip, but don't make fun of me. That's actually true. But if I am on a missions trip and I'm out in the desert somewhere and happen to get bit by a snake, trust me, the first thing I'm going to do is remind God of this verse right here. But the basic idea is that God is going to protect, he's promising a protection for disciples as we venture out in faith to carry out the Great Commission. And I know that it's especially true as it relates to missionaries, we hear of stories all the time of real modern-day demon possession that they see being cast out as someone uh, brings, uh, comes to a faith in Christ. Or where they're in an area somewhere where, uh, out of necessity, they had to drink the water which was not drinkable, and God protected them in light of that as well. I remember years ago when a friend of mine and I were in the nation of Nepal, which is just north of India, teaching in the Bible colleges there, that um, God supernaturally preserved us. I mean, uh, it's hot <laughs> in Nepal. The hotel room doesn't get below 75. Somehow we slept anyway. All they had was vegetables over a rice. That was all we had to eat. Somehow God supernaturally preserved us in light of all this. Um, no, but in reality, actually on the very last day of our trip there, um, it's pretty amazing. We got to the airport and there was a citywide taxi cab driver strike. This is in Kathmandu, 1.2 million people in the capital of Nepal. And so all of the taxi cab drivers, I mean, there was like a thousand of them, blocked the entrance to the airport. And we thought we had made it through our missions trip and were headed home. And um, so we parked our van at the bottom of the hill and we would, we would have to walk up because they wouldn't let any cars pass. On one side of the street, you got all these taxi cabs very upset. They didn't feel like they were getting paid enough or something. This was their protest. On one side of the street, angry. On this side of the, of the street are all the police officers. They don't look happy either. They got big clubs in their hands. And it's a standoff. At the bottom of the hill, the pastors say, hey, whatever you two do, I was with another buddy of mine, just keep your head down, don't make eye contact with anyone, and just keep on walking. I'm like, really? What is this all about, you know? And they're speaking in their native Nepali, so we're only getting a few things out of this. They're not really telling us what's going on. We get up to the top, and sure enough, it's a pretty intimidating scene. You got, I mean, maybe 1,500, 2,000 people in a little standoff at the top of the hill. And we're just kind of walking with our heads down. We're just kind of, you know, making our way through the taxi cars, you know. Just don't look at anybody. Just act like you know what you're doing. Pretend like you're not a part of this. 
and now we're about 15 steps out of the way. I start to feel good, and then I hear this unmistakable sound of a brick hitting the car window. I look back, just glance back, and one of the police cars had been hit by a brick that had been thrown by one of the taxi cab drivers. Well, the police officers were not happy at all whatsoever. They start chasing the taxi cab drivers. Now, those taxi cab drivers, they were a tough bunch, but no way they were standing up to those police. So they start running. Guess what direction they start running in? That's right, they're running in our direction. And all I hear is, oh! And people are falling down and tripping around, and the police are jumping on top of them, and the pastor has the gall to say to me, just keep your head down and keep walking. I felt like the roadrunner amidst wildy coyotes, you know, attempts to bump them up or something like that. And we were just, you know, walking along the way. And, and God just preserved us. You know, I, I have to be honest. I'm a big chicken about everything in the world. I was not afraid. I mean, you can get me afraid just about anything. I was, you can startle me. It's pretty, just walk around the corner away from me. And I'm telling you, I was not afraid because God had preserved us in that time he was going to protect us. We knew we had that assurance in our hearts that God it was just a supernatural kind of sensation, a sense of calm that as we were being faithful to do what God had called us to do, that he was going to protect us in that. So then, verse 19, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, where he ever lives to make intercession for you and I. And verse 20, they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through accompanying signs. Amen. Well, this is a fascinating and abrupt ending to Mark's gospel. And the reason that I say that is because wouldn't you agree with me that the prevailing emotion in this chapter is doubt and unbelief and hardness of heart? Isn't that what seems to be the indication? And yet we're told here that they went out and preached everywhere. So what changed? I mean, consider that on the night that Jesus was arrested, the disciples were told from Mark's gospel, went and ran. They forsook him and fled. According to John's gospel, they were in hiding for fear of the Jews. And according to Luke's gospel, they had lost hope. The two on the Emmaus Road were representative of the disciples as a whole, had lost their hope. We know also from John's gospel that when Mary Magdalene first discovered that the tomb was empty, she went and told Peter and John, they, I don't know who they is, but they took away the body of the Lord. She didn't first come to them and say, he is risen. She said, they took away the body of the Lord. Then here in verse 16, we're told that on two instances, the testimonies of the women and the testimonies of the disciples, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, were rejected by the rest of the disciples. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us that the reaction to the women's testimony from the disciples says that they uh, thought that the testimony was idle tales. And idle tales means silly nonsense. That's what they thought of the women's testimony concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John's gospel tells us that even after Jesus appeared to the ten minus Thomas, that the ten's testimony was rejected later by Thomas. And Thomas didn't believe until, remember, when he was able to touch Jesus, when he said, I will put my finger in his hand and in his side. And then, and only then, 
will I believe? And then on top of all that, Matthew's gospel tells us that when Jesus met with the 11 in the Galilee, as I told you, happened later on, a couple weeks later, after he had already met with them face to face, after Thomas had already put his finger in his hand and in his side and kneeled before him and declared him my Lord and my God, that even then there were some that, quote, doubted at that point. And the word for doubted means that they were hesitant or uncertain. Maybe, is this too good to be true? Is this all happening? Is this surreal? Is he really alive? Is he really resurrected? Even at that point, they were still questioning it in their hearts. And yet just a few days after that, something amazing transformed in their lives. And within a few weeks of Jesus' crucifixion, the same men who were hiding out for fear of the religious leaders, the same men that had run for their lives, the same men that were afraid, these same men were standing toe-to-toe with the very same people that had crucified our Lord, and they were preaching a resurrected Jesus Christ to them, and they were telling them that they needed to repent and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who was the Messiah of God. Then the religious leaders, to prevent that message from spreading, they did the same kinds of things that they did to try and silence Jesus' message. They threatened the disciples, they flogged them, they were beaten, they were imprisoned. And so what did the disciples do? Did they pack it up and go home? Did they say, you know what, this is just too tough. That would have been the way they were before, right? They would have said, whoa, we're going to get killed out here. No, Acts 5, they said, it's better for us to obey God rather than men. And so historians, secular historians tell us that all of the apostles, including Paul and Barnabas, were all beaten, they were all tortured, they were all martyred with the exception of John. But John was boiled in oil and survived. I'm not sure which one is better. The quote Jesus seminar people in the 70s said the disciples made up the idea of the resurrection because they couldn't handle the disappointment of the crucifixion. Nonsense. Thomas never would have gone for that because he was a good empirical scientist who needed to see for his own two eyes. And these disciples scattered when Jesus was taken from them. They fled. They ran for their lives when he went to the cross. They didn't have the strength or the courage to die for a lie or a conspiracy. As Charlie Campbell said when he was here, he said, nobody lies to get themselves into these kind of predicaments. They lie to get out of these kinds of things. Some people say, well, some people die for a lie, right? What about when some radical Muslim straps a bomb to himself and blows himself to smithereens in the name of Allah? Well, that's true. But the difference is, is that person is dying from secondhand testimony. He's dying for a lie, but he doesn't know it's a lie. Nobody dies for a known lie, and the disciples would have known, since they're the ones communicating that they saw him, whether they saw him or not, and they would not have gone through the beatings and the torture and then their martyrdom if what they were saying about having seen the resurrected Jesus Christ was not true. So then what changed these men? Well, hold on. I'm not done. Also consider 
It is a recognized fact of history that Christianity originated in 32 AD in the city of Jerusalem, which is interesting because that is the very city where Jesus had been publicly crucified and buried. If the disciples, just days after Jesus had been crucified, had come into the city of Jerusalem preaching, you need to put your faith and trust and you need to repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ who died and was buried and who rose again from the dead. And they had brought that message to Jerusalem. That message would have gained absolutely zero traction in that city if it weren't for an empty tomb and for the dozens, indeed hundreds of eyewitnesses. Later on it would say that Jesus would appear to over 500 brethren at one time. If that was not true, then that would have never gained traction in the city. Remember, the disciples didn't run off to Athens or Rome to start a new religion where the facts that they were presenting could not be verified. They started in the city of Jerusalem where if what they were saying was not true, they would be quickly exposed as being frauds, that they themselves would be frauds and what they were saying was false. As we said last week, all they would have had to do the religious leaders to squash the claims about the resurrection was produce the body. If they had produced the body, then in the front page of the Jerusalem Times or the Jerusalem Post, whatever the case may be, would be a picture of the disciples with the word fraud on it, body of Jesus of Nazareth found. And the whole thing would have been done overnight. But that did not happen because not only did Christianity originate in Jerusalem, but get this, Christianity thrived in Jerusalem. The Bible says that on the first day that Peter preached that first sermon there, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people came to Jesus Christ. And then thousands in the days to come. To at some point, there's an innumerable amount of people that had come to Christ. But in Peter's first sermon, 3,000 people came to Christ in Jerusalem like a stone's throw away from where Jesus had been buried. How could that have possibly have happened? Do you really believe that many people could have been duped into thinking Jesus had risen from the dead if, in fact, there had not been eyewitness testimonies, if, in fact, there had not been this change in the disciples? How is it possible? The best explanation for the immediate rise of the early church in Jerusalem within a hostile community to Jesus Christ. And the amazing transformation that we've seen in the lives of the disciples from the beginning of Mark's gospel to the abrupt ending of this very chapter right here is only one thing and one thing alone, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no other answer. And then we have this abrupt ending, and I think it's fitting. Because it's like when a parent reads a book to a child and then closes the book up and then the child says was that a true story and then the parent just closes the book and says well of course look all around look at the world today by the fourth century there were 30 million Christians in the world at that time there was no 7 billion people on the planet at that time 30 million Christians, and it had overwhelmed the Roman Empire. Constantine, the emperor, got saved. And now, one out of every seven people on this planet, about a billion people, profess Christ in the world today. All from the testimony of people. In other words, the very people who rejected 
the resurrection, who fought it tooth and nail in Mark 16, they are the very reason why you and I are sitting here today. Because they became so thoroughly convinced. That's not possible unless Jesus had risen from the dead. And so it's abrupt and appropriately abrupt that it ends on this point and that our takeaway now is to go and preach that message. And don't keep it to yourself. But let people know to pass the word along in the same way that somehow some faithful disciples who were martyred to get this news to you pass this word along to others who in turn pass it along to others and then somebody faithful in your life told you now it's on us to do the same for someone else Lord thank you for this wonderful book and again the, just the different vantage point that we see from Mark as opposed to John for instance and how enriching that is in our lives. And thank you, God, also for the exhortation to go and to preach, because that means that we're going to work alongside you. We all want to have good jobs, Lord, and we all want to be somebody in this world. But we should be reminded this morning that we've been enlisted by the Creator, and there's nothing better than that that you're always hiring. And Lord, we also just thank you for the truth that's in here that's applicable to our lives and the settled nature of our lives, the peace that we have in our hearts. We sometimes lose it, God, we confess, because I'm a sinner, we're sinners. And I thank you that we have access to that peace and that joy, that if we would just trust you, that would be the state of our lives. Well, most of all, I thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, who demonstrated in this gospel, on the move all the time, what it looks like. And then to suffer for me, for us, for this world, to be mocked and scorned on our behalf, the dramatic message that you send from heaven God in allowing your son to go through what he went through every part of it to get our attention and all of it wrapped up so neatly just so wonderfully presented by your Holy Spirit the perfect author and we just thank you Lord for whatever it is that we can even glean from that we know we don't understand perfectly but we thank you for what you do reveal to us, what we need to know, the essentials of our faith that we rest upon today. We pray that you would uh, fall afresh upon us now, Lord. Relieve us of the stress, the pressures, the concerns, Lord. Give us that joy of when we first believed. Lord, allow us to leave here today and go and preach this gospel around the world to whoever we're with. Lord, help us to pray and be ready for those opportunities to do so, God. We ask it in Jesus' name.